Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. Listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 79. Starlight, Star Bright. I found him in the woods out by the hospital. Thanks. Well, you got a long way this time, Dad. Especially in your slippers. Dad, get off his case. You get your butt up to bed. I'll deal with you in the morning. Deal with me what? I, I just went out to find him. Without telling us? What, so you could sneak him up the back stairs again? How many times you guys gotten away with it? Dad, to be exact, yes. Thank God you're here. I saw something. Oh, you did? It was incredible. I mean, the lights, the motion... I mean, you'll never guess what it was. I mean, it was you the most beautiful thing. Saucer. Well, no, it wasn't exactly a saucer, see, because it, it wasn't that flat. It was more like a bowl. Of course, I was only seeing it from the... You know? Of course I know. Your name is Maxwell Stoddard. You're 79 years old, and you're convinced that you've been seeing UFOs. I did see one. Uh, yeah, but see, that's what happens to you, Sam. Ziggy says your memory is Swiss cheesed with the real Mr. Stoddard, but who, by the way, right now, is in the waiting room, and he thinks he's on his way to Venus. You know, he says to me, he says... He says, take me to your leader. So I turned him over to Gushy. Told him he was the king of the planet Halitosis. Al, I gotta find a way to get back to those woods. Because there has to be some kind of physical evidence there. That's exactly what you should not do. No, 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 no. See, you don't realize what I've discovered. No, Sam, you don't realize that in less than a week, your son John is gonna have you committed to the local mental hospital. Are you sure? I mean, is Ziggy sure that that's why I'm here? A 78.1%. Oh, well, what are the odds of me being here to prove the existence of extraterrestrials? Oh, a 73.3%. I win. Yeah, but it's very close. I want to be a musician. Or a long-haired hippie bum. Dad, I have the talent. I gotta at least try. You can either go to City College or come to work with me. If Pop here had offered to feed me and put me up while I went to college on his nickel, don't you think I would have jumped at the chance? Newsflash, Dad, I'm not you. Don't you ever use that tone with me again. 
Fine. Jim! He went that way, Sam, down by the water. Yeah. How's Ziggy running projection on Timothy's future? Well, he, he runs away to Manhattan. And then he plays in a couple of performances with a small-time band called River Wind. And, uh-oh. He winds up on a slab at Bellevue. What? Overdosed on heroin. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Alison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And today we are talking about the season five episode, Starlight, Starbright. Do, 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 do. Close <laughs> Encounters meets Quantum Leap. Oh, that's what that was. Yeah. Oh, you didn't know, Matt? Uh, I, I did. I did. I'm just... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bigger geek than all yes. of us. Yes. Not only uh, is Sam having close encounters with aliens, we're having a close encounter of our own on this episode of the podcast. We have a very special guest joining us to host. It is Quantum Leap writer and producer Richard C. Oakey, who wrote this episode and several other season five episodes. Rick, welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast. Thanks very much, Chris. Glad to be here. We're talking about, I think, one of the most science fiction heavy episodes of Quantum Leap to date. And before we get into Starlight, Starbright specifically, I want to discuss a little bit in broader terms about how you came to be a writer and producer on Quantum Leap. And also the market change that the series took in season five. And if you could give us a little bit of insight as to what it was like sort of behind the scenes and in the writer's room. So start where you feel comfortable. How, how did you come to work with Quantum Leap? Well, my personal journey to it, I was a program executive at NBC uh, in the very late 70s and quickly discovered that the people who were having all the fun in the business <laughs> were the writers and the producers and the actors and the people who were actually in production and on the sets. And I had read so many bad scripts as a program executive that I thought to myself, <laughs> if this is the bar that I have to clear to uh, make a living as a writer, I think I might be able to do this. And fortunately, I was a rep to uh, several different shows from NBC. I had Little House on the Prairie and Chips and Knight Rider, the original Knight Rider with Hasselhoff. Um, and so I called up the producers I had been working with and told them my escape plan from the network. And fortunately, <laughs> uh, Michael Landon and Robert Foster at Knight Rider both said, yeah, if you want to jump ship, we'll hire you to write a script. And so Knight Rider was sort of the first one that came up in the schedule uh, I wrote one. It was successful. They invited me back for a second season. And at that point, I was I was in at Universal and Universal was the factory for episodic television, especially in the one hour area at the time. And I also wanted to make sure that I didn't get too typecast because coming off of Knight Rider, I wanted to show that I had a little more versatility than maybe that show had a chance to exhibit. <laughs> so I kept changing shows every couple seasons. I, I went to Simon and Simon, which was more of a straight up detective character based show and uh, wrote that wound up being the showrunner on that show, made friends with Gerald McRaney. That led us to develop Major Dad, which was a sitcom, which was another genre jump for me. I kept I kept jumping genres, and uh, and so Quantum Leap was my jump out of sitcoms, back into one hour, and it was perceived as sci-fi. Although I would argue that Quantum Leap is much more of a broad human interest show than a pure sci-fi show, mm. mm -hmm. and it just sort of continued in the in that vein. You know, I, I don't know if it was because I was easily bored, or I just didn't want to get typecast as oh he's one of those mystery guys, or oh he only does sci-fi. I just wanted to say, um, 
the episode Kit versus Car is one of the best of Knight Rider. Um, very, very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was thinking about that show today. I was cued that you might be interested in, in that show. <laughs> I love Knight Rider. <laughs> and I think there's a connection there because when the Evil Leaper shows came up, and when we were sitting around, you know, brainstorming ideas for season five, I think Kit versus Car was kind of on my mind. And in the oh my room, gosh. I mentioned that, you know, have we done an evil leaper? Have we done a bad version of Sam? And Deborah kind of grabbed hold of that and and ran with it. And that's that was sort of the genesis of that idea. Oh wow. Are you saying the evil leapers originated because you were thinking about about Carr? <laughs> I, I I would I would never go so far as to uh as to, you know, claim credit in that in that way. But um uh, that's kind of my recollection of of the room, yeah. That's so and great. also, I think by season five, you're asking about, you know, sort of the changes that happened in season five. I think Don was kind of becoming a, a victim of his own rules. Mm. When I came aboard on the show, it was, you know, rather strict that Sam could only leap within his own lifetime and, and only, you know, do it in certain ways. And Don had a kind of amusing uh, quasi-physics theory for why this was the case and why it made sense. In fact, I was just looking it up. The first time he explained it to me, he tried to explain it in terms of string theory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the string theory that you look, that you get. If you mm-hmm. Google string theory, you'll get a very specific kind of physics theory. Don's idea of string theory was if you took a ball of string and crumpled it in your hand, that the string would touch itself in various different spots, and, and that, that those were the spots from which Sam could leap uh, and to which he could leap. So it was kind of Don's own version of string mm. theory. What uh, what season, and can you even get it as specific as episode, did you join the staff on uh, for QL? I, I was on actually on another show of Don's briefly called Tequila and Benetti, and I came over late in season four. And the first episode I wrote, which was uh, the Rainmaker show, Single Drop of Rain, was actually a show that Don and, a, and another writer had been working on and gotten no farther than story. Um, and because I was coming on late and typically late in the season, you're scrambling for your material more than you might otherwise be. You know, they tossed toss that over to me and said, here, <laughs> make a script. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my introduction to Quantum Leap. I sort of got thrown in. But the way that the structure of the show worked in the terms of the room was was really interesting because Don loved to write the season opener and the season ender. Uh, and he would typically direct one or both of those, um, often because I think at that point, at episode one, um, we weren't too buried in terms of material because everyone had had some time to be preparing. And then, you know, if the order were 22 for the year, there were, I think, five writers at a time on the show, which meant everybody was responsible for four episodes. So typically you would have one that was sort of in somebody's head or in the typewriter you would have one that was in prep, meaning the director had come on board and you were scouting locations and casting and doing all that kind of work to prepare the show. You would have one that was actually on the stage being filmed. You'd have another one that was in post being edited and scored and, and uh, assembled in that way. And then you're back to, uh, back to dreaming up the next one. So that cycle would just you know turn like a wheel with each writer-producer sort of in charge of his own or her own material and don would weigh in heavily on everything of course but he was sort of the hub of the wheel Mm. you didn't get a whole lot of input necessarily from the other writer producers but you always got plenty of input from don 
Okay. And now if we can get a little bit more specifically into Starlight, Starbright, I know that um, your previous season five endeavor was Leaping of the Shrew, which um, we reviewed earlier this year on the podcast, and it's one of my favorites. But Starlight, Starbright is such a departure because it is probably as science fiction as Quantum Leap has gotten to this point, basically verifying the existence of extraterrestrials. So can you tell us a little bit about how this story came about and some of the behind the scenes changes that were going on to allow this kind of sea change in the way that the show was telling stories? Well, I, as I said, I, th I think that by the time we got to season five, Don was a little more willing to bend on some things. That's how we managed to get Leap Between the States made, for example, where he actually leapt into somebody who was in his own genetic line, not necessarily in his lifetime. Uh, and it's funny because I realized that both of these shows have elements of Back to the Future in them. Marty McFly is always going back to the future to make sure his parents fall in love so that he gets born. And that's similar to what happened with Sam in Leap Between States. Um, in this one, I think... There's probably more of me in Starlight, Starbright than in any other episode that I wrote for Quantum. Not so much in the sci-fi. The sci-fi argument, it was cool. And the very the impassioned declarations that Scott performed so nicely in the first half of the, of the show, I thought played great. I mean, don't you get it, Al? You see, a discovery like this, I mean, it could mean... And I feel the way I felt the first time I saw my time travel calculations working. I mean, I'm so unbelievably lucky to, to be there on the cutting edge of solving one of mankind's oldest riddles. And now, now I have a chance to solve a second one in the same lifetime. I mean, nobody gets that chance. Nobody. That stuff really played well. And it was, was fun to write because it was, he's a scientist and you could get him as impassioned as you could get about the way that a scientist would geek out on something like that. But in terms of the father-son arguments and the young son who wants to become a musician rather than go to school, those things are straight out of my life. I was, I was a musician before I was a writer, and, and there was a big debate in my family about whether I would go to college or take off to play music. In fact, I dropped out of college in the middle to go play music. Then the argument became, well, can, are you going to go back or not? So those things kind of came straight out of my life, as did elder care. What do you do with an aging grandparent who you think is losing it, who might maybe suffering from dementia? That's a very real issue. And my grandmother lived with us when I was a kid. And I got to watch my own dad really struggle with her care as she got older. And it was heartbreaking. You know, what's the difference? There's a fine line between crazy and wise sometimes among, among elders. Um, when, it, wh what when does the point come when you realize that person may need more care than you can give them? That stuff is still with us very much today. So those issues were from the heart for me. I wanted to comment on that because I really feel like this episode is a really great mix of real nerdy fan stuff for, you know, fans of Quantum Leap, but also more quintessential mainstream Quantum Leap kind of storytelling with the family dynamics and the father-son friction and those issues that you were just talking about, about elder care. But I just wanted to ask you, because in watching this, I was so enthused with Sam and for Sam and the way that you wrote Sam 
I have to think that you were not just a writer on the show, but a genuine fan of both the show and the character. How much were you really versed in the lore of Quantum Leap before you started working there? Was it something that you watched, something that you looked forward to? No, I, I got up to speed as fast as I could. Uh, when I got assigned to the show, I was aware that they had been nominated for an Emmy for Best Drama. I was aware of Scott Bakula, certainly. But I, I had to go to school in a hurry and watch as many as I could, as quickly as I could. And fortunately, Tommy Thompson and Chris Rupenthal and Deborah were super kind and eager to share, you know, quickly uh, as much as they as they could, so that it, it made everybody's work easier. You know, as long as as long as everyone on the staff could pull his or her weight, it kept the wheel turning smoothly. Uh, so that's sort of that's sort of how that worked out. Okay. And I just want to compliment you because I don't know if we've seen Sam this earnest and enthusiastic about pure science than I think since season one. So it was a real win for me. Thanks. Yeah. I, I, I love that part of it too. I mean, I thought that was great. It was so sincere. And I think that was one of the strong parts of the episode because Sam is so miserable through a lot of the show. Um, but he was just so enthusiastic about everything. And um, a lot of this episode is carried by the supporting characters. And that's not always the case with Quantum Leap. Um, there's lots of scenes that are just carried by the father and the son. So mm -hmm. um, I think it's uh, knowing that that came from your personal life, uh, from things that, that meant something to you. I think that helped bolster up the story. Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that. And I was, I was glad in the third act when the father sort of turns around and defends his father. I thought that was a nice turn so that it's, there's no real heroes or villains in this episode. There are in, in situations, but at the end of the day, family wins. And, uh, and I think that was, a, that was a good call. You can really tell, I think, all the characters are doing what they're doing out of love. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Maybe not the government guys. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> they love something. <laughs> Those guys were sort of an, they weren't an add-on. They were certainly integral to the show, but we wound up shooting some extra material with them to make sure that their role was clear. And also, frankly, I think because we were a little bit short. So I actually got to be the second unit director on the show and take those two guys out to the back lot. And I wrote a couple of extra scenes for them. Oh, like the, the scene in the car? The scene in the car was written I after. That. Yeah, it was written after filming was completed just to lay out the exposition a little more clearly, uh, to establish their characters a little earlier and more firmly, uh, and also to fill up time. It's funny, as I was looking at the show, I realized that this show, in many ways, production-wise, you know, Quantum was like a little movie every week because there were very there was very little in the way of standing sets uh, or recurring wardrobe or recurring cast. And every week was like a brand new build. And this show was almost like a bottle show. If you look at it, it almost plays like a stage play. Um, we're in their house a lot of the time, in and around their house, or quote unquote out in the woods, uh, which I think was on a stage, and on the back lot a little bit at Universal, where, where they wander out into the town and talk. It's always in one location. So it was very easy there wasn't there wasn't any big build in this one for production it was quite simple as a new yorker i was curious to know and this is just an aside for me and for the other new yorkers who've seen this episode 
where exactly were they supposed to be? Because all of the exterior shots that they showed to establish the town looked like uh, the Hudson uh, by the Tappan Zee Bridge. It was almost like a Sleepy Hollow kind of setting. Yeah, if you look at the newspaper uh, that they're that they're looking at when Sam is trying to figure out where he is, the town is listed as Charlemont. Mm-hmm. Charlemont, Massachusetts is a town in the Berkshires where I moved right after I got out of college when I was playing in a band. Uh, and we were sort of on the summer theater Berkshires circuit at that point. So that was the, the fictional location somewhere in New England, somewhere in Western New England. Yeah, it tracked because they were talking about Woodstock being way north and going down to Manhattan. So I knew they had to be somewhere north of Westchester, but not very far north. So anyway, that's that's my bias creeping in. So. No, that's a- <laughs> I had a, a question. There's um. There's a small section of the episode uh, where there's like an anti-drug message. Like uh, Sam has to talk about uh, drugs to... um, Tim is the boy. Tim, yes. Thank you. Um, So he tells Tim about uh, this weed being like a gateway drug and stuff like that. Uh, Was this something that you put in uh, as like a personal experience or was this something they asked about? Like maybe include an anti-drug message or... No, I, I, I think that was just me. Uh, I've, I've been sober for quite a while. And, you know, certainly at that stage of my life was wrestling with addictions and, and drugs or, you know, maybe not as badly as some other people, but bad enough. And um, not, not during quantum, I mean, more like in teenage and 20s. And I thought it would be a really cool thing. Sam, knowing what he knows coming from the future can mention the names of Jim Morrison and mm. Janis Joplin and, and Jimi Hendrix and say, remember this conversation. Do not forget this conversation. It's one of those little, you know, drop a letter in a letterbox kind <laughs> of quantum leap moments, mm. you know, that somebody's going to open that letter later and read it and things will change. Um, only it gets to happen in person. So I thought it worked well. It, it took advantage of the time travel in a way that would have an, and it, and it was resolved right on the spot. Dean Stockwell is looking at, at, you know, at the handheld and going, yep, it's okay. He's safe now. So it, it was all, it all sort of happened in one scene. The same thing with um, the little Jimi Hendrix moment when, mm-hmm. when, uh, when Sam does his back to the future, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jimi Hendrix mirror shot. That was a lot of fun too. I think the guitar, the real guitarist who played uh, that stuff, is a guy named John Goo, who was just a fantastic yeah. uh, studio player who, who Ray Bunch used frequently. I just love the fact that you guys were able to find something that was in the public domain that you could Hendrix up. <laughs> glory, glory, hallelujah! <laughs> well, well, I've, I've, I've heard it done. I've heard uh, America the Beautiful done that way. It's funny because other other people, when you know, they they don't want to go to Hendrix, but they want to go to something that's in the vein, you know. So that, I, yeah, I can't remember who picked that one, but it worked. And um, it was evocative of, of course, the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. Mm, so, right. just curious, as a classic rock fan, who was your favorite classic rock artist? Did you get to mention them? Did you drop all the names here in the script? <laughs> <laughs> um, probably the Eric Clapton was the one on the list who would be closest to mine. I was uh, I was a big Grateful Dead fan, and also when I dropped out of school to go play, we I moved to Aspen, Colorado, and we moved into a bar a house band gig that had been vacated not too long before by the Eagles. 
Wow. I've always been a fan of those guys. You know, I love harmonies, three-part, four-part harmonies. So well, Clapton was my favorite growing up, so I appreciate the call out. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I know that you were able to incorporate a lot of the family drama that the show was known for and a lot of the nostalgia factor with the music that the show established in its run. But you were also venturing far afield from a lot of the more mainstream things, like I was talking before about the science fictional aspects of this episode, specifically the UFO stuff. I was wondering, did you research any of the UFO stuff that had been done up to that point, specifically like a Project Blue Book, or how did you ground that part of the script? I don't think I made too much of that, to be honest with you. I was a big fan. It's funny, you started out with the Close Encounters theme, and I was a big fan of that movie. And, you know, I think I, I think I did read up on some stuff back at the time. When he refers to uh, clusters of sightings in certain parts of the country, to me, when I watched it again, that sounded like something that, that probably came out of research. Um, but it also served the plot, so honestly, I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> whether I made it up or whether I read it somewhere. But no, nothing. I think it was more in the culture at that time. You know, everybody was talking about it. You know, Star Wars was out. Close Encounters was out. I think it was just kind of what would work for the audience and what would what would work for the play. You'd mentioned earlier the evil leapers concept. Was there ever any thought about that recording at the end when uh, Sam has the he's under the truth serum and uh, the Project Blue Book and all that, and they're they're recording him talking about quantum leap? Why do you need a clearance, Doctor Beckett? My project. What is your project? Project Quantum Leap. Oh, no. This project studies unidentified flying objects. Travel in time. Was there an, ever any? Uh, discussion of that tying into the evil leaper origin i don't think so much for that i think i remember don just saying be careful you know don't don't give away anything too much it's it's funny uh, there's some cool stuff in that scene like his mother's name is thelma louise mm-hmm. Beckham, mm-hmm. which cracked mm-hmm. me up when i heard it I, I don't know if she's mentioned other places or not is she there is um, an episode where he leaps into his younger self, and uh, she's a, a character in that. Okay, so Thel- Thelma, that obviously came out of Thelma and Louise, right? I guess. Um, so they probably <laughs> they fed me that one. <laughs> well, um, the other thing from that scene that I wanted to know about is that you gave Quantum Leap some real government bona fides, putting it under the auspices of the Department of Defense in this. And was that a discussion that you had to have beforehand? Because I know Quantum Leap played pretty fast and loose with its own mythology and where the project stood in relation to the government and how it operated. Was this a bigger discussion before you wrote it or was it just something you wrote? I think it was stuff that I wrote and Don just just read it and, and chuckled and got a kick out of it and approved it. Um, I was thinking about working with him as I was preparing for this and I was surprised when I watched the episode how much, uh, how many wild lines there were. There's a lot of uh, dialogue written after. Um, every time somebody's, you know, mouth is blocked or they step behind a post, you know, <laughs> out, out comes a lot of dialogue. And yeah. Don had a great term for that. He called it post-creative rationalization. <laughs> I'm sure you've probably heard that term before. Yeah the other writers and you know he would he would sort of decide what he wanted to do do it and then make up the reason for it on the fly <laughs> uh, 
So I think that was stuff that, that, you know, I put it in and it passed the Don smell test. You know, that was probably how that worked. I don't think he leaned on me to say, oh, no, you can't say that. Or we did it this way. And I've been on other series where, they're, where they were, you know, really much more religious about that. But I think if it if it made sense and it worked in the play, then it was pretty much okay with him. All right. Well, I mean, if we could expand out a little bit, I know that Allison, you're a huge fan of Knight Rider and also <laughs> a casually huge fan of Tequila and Benetti. So <laughs> I'm sure you're just chomping at the bit. <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, I just just a fan of the shows, really. <laughs> um, what was it like working on Tequila and Benetti? That's such a, a weird little program. Oh, it was it was strange. Um, it didn't last that long. That was uh, was one thing. I, that's where I first got to know Jim Whitmore, though, who who is a, a wonderful guy and a great director and a great actor and just a smart, wonderful person to have working on your show. And he he would come in just chuckling every day because the scripts were so odd and the characters, uh, you know, Jack Scalia <laughs> was trying his best to, you know, play opposite the dog <laughs> and Jim would, Jim would come in he, and he'd do this with every episode. He'd come in and he'd plop himself down across the desk and he'd look you in the eye and he'd go, what's it about? <laughs> and I'd say, well, it's about this, you know, this family in New York and the father wants his kid to go to college and the kid wants to go. And he'd go, no, 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 no. What's it about? And he, he wouldn't stop until he, you know, he really had his arms around the theme of the episode and what, what was the message? What were you trying to say? And I think the biggest conversation he had, or the most conversations he had about any episode were about the series finale, because that was such a, an out of the box script and only Don really knew what it was about. Yeah. I think that's what everyone's been asking for years. What is it about though? <laughs> what is it about? <laughs> What's it about? Um, Night Rider was was uh, you know I was so wide eyed it was my first show and I came aboard pretty early in the run and, and my most vivid memories really are going over to David Hasselhoff's apartment to wake him up when he missed his call oh no which he would sometimes do because he liked to go out dancing at the Black Angus <laughs> and frequently invite members of the crew to come along with him and you know the call would come up the next morning and he would oversleep and somebody would have to go roust him and. You know, say, hey, let's go to work. And also walking into the dub stage where William Daniels was recording dialogue for the car. And he would take it absolutely as seriously as he would take any other role that he ever played. So, you you know, you'd walk onto the stage and here's this little man with a proper New England accent asking you what the... <laughs> What does the car mean by this? And what is the car's motivation for this? <laughs> Man, I don't know. You know? <laughs> He's just talking to Michael Knight. And it was it was hilarious. It was pretty pretty wonderful. This is all great. Um, you know what I think? Like the thing I like about um shows like Knight Rider, Tequila and Benetti, and and Quantum Leap, really too, is that they all essentially have really ridiculous, outlandish premises. They really do, but. It's the sincerity that ties it together. Like, mm -hmm. I, I feel, you know, just to be like, what does the car mean? What is this episode of Tequila and Benetti about? Like, what is the, you know, Quantum Leap is a weird body swapping time travel jumble of things. But somehow it's like, okay, here's a, a tight story about, uh, you know, a family. Um, 
And then there's some aliens involved, and uh, there's a scientist who wants to prove aliens exist, and like all of this somehow gels together into one great story. So I just I appreciate the sincerity. Oh, well, thanks. You know, as I watched it again, the part of it that sort of weirded me out was the very ending, because they were all pretty damn calm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> They're looking up at the sky, seeing a you know an elliptical orb that's 15 meters on one <laughs> axis and 10 on the other, and they're blathering away about that stuff. If it were me, I'd be hiding under the bushes, peeing my pants. <laughs> but they're all very casual about it. And, you know, and Sam walks out or, or uh, you know, the Sam's the leapy, the person he leapt into, uh, walks out to hop aboard a spacecraft and Sam's off to his next adventure. So I love there's no ambiguity there. It's like, yep, there's aliens and he's, yeah. he's got to be abducted. And that's how, how he leaps. Bye. See it's you a later. perfect ending. That's great for that character. And what happened to those uh, to those government officials when they went back with that story? <laughs> I want to know what happened with all the recordings, though. It seems like there was yeah. a lot of information that Sam gave them. It just it opens up so many possibilities. Mm, probably bulk erased somehow. Who knows? <laughs> was there ever any discussion to give it a more ambiguous ending to to have sort of more of a, a question mark at the end? Not that I recall. No, I think everybody was ready to hop aboard. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) Are there any other aspects of this production or the other productions? Because I know that we're talking about Starlight Starbright, but you were in so many of the high watermarks of season five, so many of the more different and memorable Mm. episodes that before I move on to a couple of those, I just want to make sure that we're not missing anything from Starlight Starbright. I think we've covered it pretty well. Uh, you know, you guys ask, ask good questions, and it's, it's 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 fun to talk about. It's fun to look back on that one. All right, so Allison, Matt, I mean, have at it. We have Evil Leaper. We have um, Leap Between the States. We have Marilyn Monroe. I mean, yeah, yeah, Gosh. so so many different episodes that are just so quintessentially season five. It's crazy. And I, I've got to say, I love the Evil Leaper concept and the Evil Leaper episodes. They're three of my favourite episodes throughout the whole run. Was there the original plan for the Evil Leapers to be an ongoing foe? If there'd have been a sixth season? Because Return of the uh, Revenge of the Evil Leaper wraps it all up very neatly. But I've got to wonder, if season six was on the horizon, would that have been left more open-ended? Probably. I probably, I think that's... This is the answer I don't want to hear. I, I, don't, I don't want to know that there could have been more. <laughs> I think at that point, and it's funny, I'm, I may bow out of that question if I might, because that's one of the areas where Don and Deborah were sort of at odds and uh, sure. in their personal lives and, and also in their professional lives. And the, uh, the direction of the show got enmeshed with some of the problems that they were having. So it makes it tough to answer that question. Sure. Okay. Um, it does feel like there was a little bit of turmoil around the evil leaper idea, just because, um, like, I've read a, a few scripts uh, for the evil leapers, uh, alternate drafts of uh, of episodes or unproduced episodes, um, and uh, it seems like almost always the ones that weren't used had this had bad endings. There, but then all of a sudden, uh, in the episodes that were aired, there was like more hopeful endings, uh, particularly with Aaliyah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm sure that was something that was that everyone went back and forth about what should be done with these characters. Well, I think everybody really liked Renee Coleman and, and, you know, oddly enough, sometimes the casting can make a big difference on, on can have a big bearing on the questions we're talking about. 
she was an interesting actor and who, you know, who people were intrigued with. But I, th- but I think, yeah, I think you're right. And it's funny you talk about alternate drafts. The one that I remember most distinctly having alternate drafts was Norma Jean. When I started researching that episode, I got enchanted with the interaction between Marilyn and the Kennedys. Hmm. And the research was really fun on that one. I just, I went on the Marilyn Monroe tour of Los Angeles. Uh, I went to the Westwood Cemetery where she's buried and, and visited her grave. And I wanted to go see the house where she died. I got the address out of some of the some of the books that were out at the time and looked it up. And I'll be darned if it wasn't for sale right mm-hmm. at the moment when I was writing the episode. So I phoned up the realtor and misrepresented that I was interested <laughs> in buying the house. <laughs> I wanted to take a look at it. And, and she said, sure. Oh, and wow, so I got wow. to go over to the house and wander around. And it was exactly as described in all the literature. There's a plaque at the front door. It's a tile mosaic and the, with a Latin coat of arms and a motto. And the motto reads, here my journey ends, which is nice if you're coming home from a trip. Not so nice if it's the place where you, uh, where you pass away. It just gave me goosebumps. You know? and it was, it was, so I turned in the draft that was essentially talking about it a romance between her and Robert Kennedy, really, in that draft. Um, and Don read it and, and said, you know, this is pretty great, but I don't think we want to go there. Oh, okay. Let's take a more all about Eve kind of approach to the story and, uh, and we turned it into what it ended up being. But that's one of those ones where there were two completely different drafts. Wow. That was one where um, the themes really resonated with me. Depression being so non-discriminate. Yeah, I thought it was just really well written. Hmm. Thanks. Yeah, I, I like that one too. It turned out really well. Going from the standard quantum leap premise where you can basically have anything happen because Sam isn't in historical figures, did you find your hands tied in any other ways in trying to approach a Marilyn Monroe story since you couldn't really change her fate? It was really about where is he going to land in relation to her. Uh, and I think the idea of having him be a driver was plausible. I mean, her story is so well documented that it's really difficult to find a place to squeeze in somebody who could have been close enough to the action to have a personal relationship with her and yet not mess up the history too badly. And I think that was a good choice. So yeah, and and that that one's one of the ones that was sort of so tied to real history that yeah, it was difficult. Also the actress Susan, is it Susan Griffiths? Mm. Is that her name who played Marilyn? Boy, she made a career out of playing Marilyn. She was the greatest Marilyn double ever. And we're not the only show to hire her to do that. I think she has some other Marilyn credits on her resume. Well, it's great that she could act, too, because some people are impersonators, but not because they're actors, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, she was great. If I'm remembering correctly, the casting session, she came into the casting session in full Marilyn. And it was jaw-dropping. It was, oh, my God. It was creepy. (laughs) 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 Everything but the dress blowing up around her knees, pretty much. You know, (laughs) just the hair, the makeup, the the mole, the beauty spot, the the lipstick, the whole look. It was just like, oh, wow. Yeah, she really, really nails it. Yeah, she does. Um, And Leaping Leaping at the Shrew, I had such a good time on that one, too. And, And mostly a good time 
because of Brooke Shields. And kudos to Robin Bernheim for believing right away early on that, that we could get Brooke number one and that Brooke could do it and wouldn't mind rolling around in the dirt and, 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 <laughs> and getting, she didn't have to be a glamour puss. She wasn't a diva. She came to play. She was a great person on the set. Everybody loved working with her. And we just had a blast during the, the filming and during the post-production of that show. Be, hanging out with her was really interesting because she was such an instantly recognizable star. I remember walking into the Polo Lounge to have a meeting with her and her mom, who was traveling with her at the time. And we we're sitting at the table waiting. And all of a sudden, I hear the piano at the Polo Lounge shift. And the guy starts playing the theme from Endless Love. Because he had spotted Brooke walking into the, <laughs> to the bar, and and I real <laughs> and it was magical. It's like, oh my, here she comes, and there's the music, and, <laughs> and it, was, it was quite an entrance. And I realized that you know this is a cool thing because if you wanted to go hang out in the polo lounge, you could know which celebrities were there if you listened to the piano player because they would play theme music for them when they walked in the room. Huh. And I had the great pleasure of they we recorded it down in Long Beach. We shot it in Long Beach. And it was really noisy between the harbor down there and the sounds of the waves and the ocean, so much so that we had to re-record all of her and Scott's dialogue for those scenes at the beach. But she had meanwhile gone back to New York. So I got to jump on a plane and fly to New York and hang out with Brooke Shields for a day and re-record pretty much every line from the show. Wow. And uh, and then go out to dinner in Little Italy afterwards. And I felt like such a big shot, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> everywhere you go, she gets recognized. And we, mm. she, she picked the restaurant. It was a place she liked to go. She knew the maitre d'. And it was just super fun time. It was, you know, just great. That's so cool. I did have a question about Leaping of the Shrew. Um, the, the script was a little bit weird. Um, not, not the writing, of course, but, um, <laughs> there was, um, and the, the draft listings. Uh, I haven't seen this on any other scripts where it's, it said like spec run or spec something. That's probably um, special, I would think. The date for that was before Lee Harvey Oswald, which was the season opener. So I wondered if there was anything special about that particular script mm, i have to think about that one i can nothing nothing exactly jumps to mind i do remember my but maybe the funniest ever jean-pierre d'orliac moment happened during that show uh when they were we were shooting at the beach and and you know sam has on a sailor uniform and brooks wearing whatever's brooks wearing but they've been shipwrecked and washed up on the beach and they're supposed to have, you know they're covered with grease and dirt and all this stuff and Jean-Pierre is trying to mess up their wardrobe in a plausible way, but they keep getting wet. And every time they get wet, his work on the wardrobe gets messed up. <laughs> he finally discovers that if he puts shoe polish, you know, on Sam's shirt and then covers it with KY jelly, that it will repel the water long enough that the stain will stay in place so that it's not changing every time the camera starts and stops. So he, he makes this discovery and he, and he, but he, has to get the KY and he runs up to a little mom and pop grocery store, <laughs> uh, drugstore in Long Beach and walks in and fills a shopping cart with KY. <laughs> walks, up to, walks up to the cashier who gives him a, a look like, what? What? <laughs> and Jean-Pierre, Jean-Pierre doesn't explain at all. He goes, 
if you had more, I'd buy more. <laughs> <laughs> And then that's he came awesome. back and told, couldn't wait to tell us all about it. It was hilarious. Oh, that's great. We we interviewed him for that episode. He didn't mention that story. That's awesome. <laughs> Unforgettable. It was a great moment. When you guys were um, thinking about the Leap Between the States, can you tell us a little bit about how that episode came about? Because, again, it's another real outlier for the series and such a spectacle. Yeah, it is. It's sort of the opposite of uh, of Starlight Starbright in terms of production. David Hemmings was the director on that show, and, and he came from the feature world, so he was the right guy to sort of take on that challenge. And lots of extras, tons of wardrobe. Uh, we went up to Disney Ranch in uh, Newhall, I think, to to record the battle stuff, and uh, yeah, it was massive. I'm uh, story-wise, script-wise, I'm. Uh, I'd have to. I have to go back and look at it again and give it a little more thought to give you the. Okay, the right no problem. Answer. Maybe we can cover that one um, some other time, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a few months before we'll get to that. So if you want to come back again to discuss that in a greater detail, we'd love yeah, to have you. When I go back and look at it, it's fun because a lot of stuff comes rushing back when you see it again. And all right, so yeah, we can put a pin in that. Well, Rick, it's just an amazing thing to get all these behind-the-scenes tidbits. Just when you think you've already, say, like discussed an episode like Leaving of the Shrew, we had the great jump here, Dorliak himself, on the program to discuss the process that went into the costuming for that. Yet he never told us that KY story, which is mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> which is why it's so invaluable to get um, so many perspectives. So thanks so much. Uh, what are you working on these days? Where can our fans find you? Well, it is the time of COVID, and so a lot of the things I have are sort of frozen at the moment. I, I, uh, Ralph Hemmerker and I wrote a pilot called Oasis, which is at E1, which is the company that produces Godfather of Harlem. Um, but we're sort of stuck and stalled, uh, waiting for the business to sort of resume. And I, I, I just had a pitch, a successful pitch for a new documentary uh, last Friday, actually, oh, wow. waiting for a start date on. Um, yeah, another part of my continual reinventing and genre jumping was going to work for Discovery and, and making a documentary series for them. And uh, the partner that I did that work with just called me up the other day and said, hey, you want to do another one? And I said, sure. The nice thing about documentaries is they're sort of COVID proof because, you know, production can be very limited and structured if you're doing on, on camera interviews and using archival footage and stuff like that. It's pretty safe. That's very cool. We'll see where it all ends up. Can you discuss what the documentaries are about? This one is about, it's, it's interesting. Back in the late seventies, there was a fledgling women's basketball league called the WBL, the women's WPBL women's professional basketball league. It's a kind of a league of their own story about a woman who who tried to get a, a professional league off the ground prior to the WNBA. And they had a really interesting time of it. They had a lot of crazy inept ownership and uh, a lot of the best college players at the time were holding out because they wanted to go to the 1980 Olympics. Uh, so they would not go pro because at the time, you, you know, the dream team stuff hadn't happened yet and you couldn't endanger your amateur status. And so some of the most famous women players of the day, most especially uh, Ann Myers, who was a four-time All-American and one of the best-known female athletes in America at the time, was holding out for the Olympics. And then the 80 Olympics got boycotted. Uh, Jimmy Carter said, we're not going because they're in Moscow. And so suddenly they, those women came back and played for the league. 
Um, and it, 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 this version of it only lasted a few years, but it's a really interesting story with some really interesting characters. It's interesting what happened to those women and how, how hard they had to work just to get a foot in the door of pro sports. But it was the same time when women were just starting to play golf in the LPGA and tennis in the Virginia Slims Tour. And I think a lot of female, if, you, if, if not for women like this at that time, you wouldn't have Simone Biles today. You wouldn't have uh, Venus and Serena. You wouldn't, a lot of the, those doors that they kicked open stayed open so that women today could have a, a, a real shot at being well-recognized professional athletes. Oh, you really weren't kidding about jumping genres, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a really great topic. Like, yeah. a, like I'm looking forward to that. Well, the most fun thing about it is their characters, and they really are characters. They had just some some really interesting stories to tell, and the kinds of prejudice that they had to go up against just to play their game was really difficult. One woman actually lost custody of her kids because a judge mm. ruled that being a professional basketball player was not a suitable occupation for a mother. Oh, man. Wow. That sounds like it would be an interesting leap for Sam to make. Yeah. Well, when the reboot happens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, thank you so much, Rick, for um, sharing your insights with Starlight, Starbright, and a lot of the other season five episodes that you worked on. We do look forward to having you back to talk about Leap Between the States. I think I'm going to hold you to that because that's fascinating in and of itself, that episode. So we'd love to have you back to expand on that. Sure. Happy to do it. It's been a lot of fun. It's great to uh, walk down memory lane and, and think about those good days. Thank you. This has been great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And um, everybody who's listening at home, stay tuned. Uh, we're going to throw to a break. Then we will be back and we'll be doing some more general discussion of Starlight, Starbright. Stay tuned. QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. So what's Captain Game Show? Well, the short answer is it's a podcast. The long answer is it's a lighthearted trivia wordplay Thunderdome. I call this game Dark and Gritty Kids. Natural show. Born Sequel. What's my motivation? Epic Bird Play. Advertising 10101. Rhymecast. Mr. Dalek. Life Coach. I'll come up with games, and my guests come up with answers. <laughs> He's got to put down the ducky if he wants to play the saxophone. The born monogamy. Wolfgang Puck is Darkwing Duck. Big Rimlock is Tupac. My Little Pony friendship is Magic Mike. <laughs> There's also improv, music, and an inordinate amount of rhyming. Good night, John Travolta, with Klingon-like hair. Good night, 3% rating. <laughs> you're tough, but you're fair. You can find Captain Game Show on CosmicPotato.com. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you normally get your podcast. Round one, round two, final round. Fight! I don't know where this is going, but I like it. Hi, this is Jean-Pierre Dorliac, and you're listening to the Quantum League podcast, which is unsurmountably fabulous.
Oh wow, I'm I'm just uh, reading up on Car because I've never seen Knight Rider, but oh, yeah, I, no, as, yeah, as a huge evil. evil Leaper fan, I now have to. <laughs> Car is the evil counterpart to Kit, the Car in Knight Rider. Uh, Car K A R R. Entirely identical, <laughs> with the exception of the yellow green voice module on his dashboard. Oh, he is voiced by Peter Cullen, yes, uh, Optimus Prime fame, uh, and many other things. And uh, he he has another voice actor I'm spacing on now, um, also a very prominent voice actor. Uh, Paul Freeze. I believe it was not Peter Cullen in the Kit vs. Car episode. That was the second appearance of Car uh, when he returns after, um, I believe, he drove off a cliff. <laughs> and he <Yes>. goes, No! <laughs> Yeah, Carr has quite a lengthy um, Wikipedia entry. So yeah, so Peter Cullen and Paul Freeze. <laughs> this was sadistic for that episode with Carr. That's why it's it's the best Carr episode. A couple of uh, bumbling criminals, I believe, or uh, some some people like um, they they are using Carr, and then Carr holds the guy's girlfriend hostage and is heating up the inside of it, and she's dying inside so he can get what he wants. <laughs> oh my God, he's so evil. Well, everyone, in case you're wondering, we are back, and uh, you have stumbled you on Allison. You, you don't cut no. a second. Don't no, cut no. a second. No, of you, this. you've all stumbled on Allison's backdoor pilot to her Night Rider podcast, The Chronicles of Car. C A R R. Okay, I, th- I think um, I think Rick alluded to this: um, the fact that uh, Night Rider could be a little bit. Um, it, it's the range was not there, so there is a lot of episodes that are just just clunkers. Just a lemon, you know. Um, <laughs> but there are like there are ones that reach greatness, and Kit versus Car is one of them. So I'm just gonna say, very excellent work. I love the fact that uh, the Wikipedia article for Car. Sorry, I'm, I'm just delving into a Night Rider thing now. That's um, the Wikipedia article for Car has like any fictional character has the credits for it, including portrayed by Pontiac Trans Am. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, I, d- I did have some stuff I wanted to talk about with Starlight Star. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, um, of course. <laughs> me too. I'm actually, I'm kicking myself because I did have one question. I wanted to see if Rick came up with the term psychosynergize. <gasps> yes. Oh. Well, sometimes when you psychosynergize like you did with Oswald. You're psychosynergizing like you did with Oswald. We finally have a freaking name for what was happening. I think they think they use like magnafoozled and stuff before that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So psychosynergize is like it's it's almost like hard science here. Yeah. So uh uh well, you know, we always have leap between the states. Remind me to ask him then. Yeah, oh my gosh. He did provide a lot of information. There's actually a lot of questions I didn't think about until we were we were on. I know. I was suddenly racking my brain for Return of the Evil Leaper stuff particularly. Like, oh god. <laughs> So much we could talk to him about. Yeah, I mean, we could have him back just for Leaper itself, but that's like two episodes from now. So it's like- we'll make him the we'll make him another co-host. Yeah, he'll just be on with us all the time. Yeah, he wrote uh, "Evil Doogie Hauser." <laughs> that's got to be a story in itself. Working with Neil Patrick Harris before he became NPH. <laughs> anyway, really, really super interesting dude, and uh, you're just easy to talk to. And thanks so much, Rick for uh spending the time with us we look forward to having you back and i gotta say um this one starlight starbright i i I think we ticked most of the boxes that i have with our discussion with rick but another 
uh, when we think of season five, we think of hokey gimmicks. Yet this is another <laughs> one that ticks all the boxes. It, it's just right in Quantum Leap's sweet spot to me. Yeah. I think they were usually pretty good about, even if it has a gimmick, trying to find something that, that grounds it in something. Mostly. Not every episode accomplished this, but this one I think did. Because if you take out the aliens, you still have a solid story. Yeah, exactly. I, I see this as a bit of a trinity with uh, the, the UFO episode, the vampire episode, and the Bigfoot episode. <laughs> they, they are three of a kind, and not in terms of quality. That's, that's, we, we, know, we know what I think about Blood Moon. <laughs> you can include it with the, the Mummy episode, but that's last season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If, if the Mummy episode had been in this season, it, it would be along the same lines. But exactly like you say, Alison, this one and the Bigfoot one, it's not really about that. And that's what interested me, Chris. I know you, you sort of leapt straight into the, this is a really sci-fi episode. So this is about UFOs and, you know, we, we ended up spending a lot more time talking to Rick about the family stuff because mm-hmm. really that's, I think it felt to me like they needed the UFO thing as a hook for why is it that they think Max Stoddard is um, going a bit crazy. They need something for him to be obsessed over. But to my mind, the UFO part is really almost irrelevant to the, the plot of the episode aside from that. This is a, an episode about a family. Yeah, I mean, it's ambiguous until the very end whether he really did see a UFO. They talk a lot about the fact that Sam psychosynergizes with the Leapy sometimes, so uh, he very well could have just been seeing what Max Stoddard was seeing. Yeah. Um, and he could have been crazy, and that was part of the debate of the episode. So I think it was it was a good way of incorporating it. Um, at the end, they they confirmed that it is, but uh, that's a lot, how a lot of quantum leap episodes, even in the past, worked. It'd be like, uh, in the end, there's a ghost. In the <laughs> in the end, there's a mummy. Uh, but that's not really what the episode's about. I gotta say, I don't think there was very much ambiguity in the opening shot. I mean, you saw the UFO going over his head and then fly off into the distance. <laughs> I'm just gonna say the budget really showed with the UFO effect. <laughs> Yeah, what think- was that? <laughs> what was it? I was actually, I've been taking screen grabs of that and reverse Google image searching to try and find what shitty made-for-TV movie that was lifted from. Because it really <laughs> looks it? like... It, no, I, I, I haven't found any evidence that's the case. It just looks like it was lifted from something else. It's, um, it's not Quantum Leap's finest visual moment. Yeah, it w- even like when they he's looking through the uh the newspaper clippings and there's a picture of a UFO. It's just like a black drawing like in Sharpie or a cutout or something, <laughs> like it's nothing. Uh yeah, really um I mean the rest of the, the story carried it. Uh the UFO is not very yeah. not a very good effect. But it's not about the UFO. And this is I I do seem to recall uh, when we were last recording um, when when we did the throw forward to this episode, I think I did kind of offhandedly describe this as a really awesome mirror shot surrounded by uh, forty minutes of stuff. And then I went back to to watch this episode again in, in preparation for this recording and realized how unfair I was being because I do think about this as a UFO episode, and it yeah, I kind of kind of ignore it and and I disregard it in that respect. And uh, it's it's actually a really strong episode when you when you look at it the way it's meant to be to be looked at what mirror shot he means the the guitar thing right yeah 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 it's the the guitar thing is like the it's one of the best mirror shots they ever did it's very good it's marvelous 
It's hilarious. But but I always think that's the that's the only good part of the episode until I actually watch it and then I realize it's a really good episode. It's just only ever the mirror shot that I remember. I think um what helps the alien stuff be stronger uh, for me is the fact that Sam is just so enthusiastic about it. Mm. And all of a sudden he is the alien expert. But this is kind of like the the Egyptian thing where it's like he doesn't have to constantly bring it up to be into it. It's very relevant for this episode. Um, he leaps in and he's just ready to meet some aliens. He's like, yeah. what? Hey, what's up? <laughs> There's some aliens up there. Hey, who are you? <laughs> what's going on? Um, and he's, he's looking at the stars and he's like talking to them through the episode and in his speech with Al, where he's looking out the window talking about, um, solving these two huge mysteries in one lifetime, how no one has that chance. It's a really, really good speech. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the best Sam moments of the series, in my opinion. And it was because I was just, like I was telling Rick, I was just so swept up in Sam's enthusiasm that it made me feel like, oh, wow, this is so great for fans because everything we love about Sam is just front and center right here. All of his optimism and all of his drive and just everything that makes him Sam is just, oh, man, it, I loved it. He he says that proving the existence of extraterrestrials would be as important as Project Quantum Leap. That's how the importance he places on it. I think that that's true. If you're going to look at um, uncharted scientific territory, proof of extraterrestrial life has got to be up there as one of the chief goals of humanity, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love that he's so into it in that way. And then he's like, maybe I'm here to prove that aliens exist. Mm. Like, I could, I, I got to help this family, but maybe, <laughs> maybe aliens. Maybe, yeah. So maybe he could rig it so that uh, he finds a, um, well, I guess it would be one of Sammy Joe's kids. Oh, sorry, I'm jumping the timeline. And he could leap into the future to see if we've made first contact yet. Mm. Well, if you read the comics, I believe yeah. it's conclusively <laughs> got some, <Spoilers>. some contact. <laughs> yeah, Look, no. it's the cover. It's the cover of the comic. If you've seen yeah, them, know. you know that aliens <laughs> show up. Yeah. Also, we've been discussing the space bar in the end of Mirror Image for, what, over a year now? Well, just because they're in space don't mean no aliens are out there. I got to think there's going to be aliens in a space bar. That's just my gut. I just like calling him Aliens. He's got him. He meets the Aliens in the space bar. I love that Al. Al's talking to um, to Max in the uh, the waiting room. He says, "Take me to your leader." So he, he tells him Gushy is the king of the planet Halitosis. Yeah. It's so cute the way that Al, Al's kind of having quite a bit of fun at, at his expense, but he just he seems like he has some affection for it. It's it's not meant maliciously but he, he is kind of um yeah he, he's having fun at max's expense he's goofing yeah it's in a it's in a kind way and it's it's well performed by dean so some of those lines as written could be performed quite harshly but uh dean brings it off the page really well you could tell that uh the richard oki like actually um after doing his homework paid attention to all of these details because there's stuff that Owl uh, mentions in this episode that's th things about his character. He mentions Beth when he's like uh, talking to Goshi, like, if I pop out of existence, leave everything to my first wife, Beth. Um, I love that this, I think this is the sole mention of his second wife, or maybe the f most information we get. But yeah, I got a bad feeling about? about this, Sam, like my, my second wife, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Al. what's her name? Yeah, yeah, Al. 
the Hungarian one. Ow. Uh, which, the the Hungarian one? Yeah. <laughs> That's all we know. <laughs> you got to figure, when he was married to her, he was in profound grief and probably drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. So that's the way I look at that. Yeah. That's why he can barely remember who she is <laughs> and who knows how long it lasted. I kind of headcanoned it as like a shotgun marriage that didn't last very long, like after the Beth thing, like he just kind of jumped in and it was a little tumultuous. That's kind of my thoughts on it. I just think that Al was probably in one of the worst places in his life during that second marriage. Oh, yeah. I think it was like a disaster, not necessarily because of her part, but uh, I think that just he was in a bad place and got into a marriage in a in a rebound. Yep. Matt, do you remember if there were any other mentions of a second wife? Oh, no, you know I can never remember this stuff. Uh, <laughs> just just give maybe me a sec. He, maybe he said he took her to Niagara Falls in that uh, the one where they're on the um, Honeymoon Express. Gosh, if there was only some reference guide that we could uh, <laughs> refer to. Yeah, what, what do you think I'm looking at at the moment, Chris? Give me time. Right. Um, Matt, you gotta hurry. The time's running out. It's about your research, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love that that um that Richard Oakey mentioned Back to the Future so much. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the uh the plot elements, whether they were uh intentionally inspired by that or not. It's hard not to. It's such a touchstone. And the second you see him wailing out on that guitar, of course you're gonna be thinking of Johnny B. Good. And um at le- you know, the fact that he copped to it right away was refreshing <laughs> because how can you how can you not? <laughs> There's these uh, poster art, I believe it's Spanish release VHSs, um, that have this hand-drawn poster art uh, for Quantum Leap, and they're clearly, very clearly Back to the Future. They're doing the Back to the Future poster, so they got Sam on them. Um, He's repainted in both of them, but he's like checking his watch and doing like the step forward, and I believe the the name of the the series in Spanish is also like a take on Back to the Future, Uh, something in El Tiempo. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't you making me check that as well now? Hang oh, on. sorry, Matt. <laughs> Give you homework. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if I can find pictures uh, of that to put up on the website at uh, quantumleappodcast.com dot com. If anybody at home is interested, yeah, remind me. I have pictures of it. Yeah, there's some beautiful scans in Beyond the Mirror Image. Yeah, they did one for uh, the Leap Home Part Two, so he's like dressed like he is in, in Vietnam, and then there's the the pilot. Are you thinking about the German art? No. Der Zeitsprung, because that does have him checking his watch. Um, I think it was released in multiple languages. Yeah. Der Zeitsprung, I believe, the time jump, I think that's Der Zeitsprung. Yeah. So um, uh, th- I've seen some different art for that, which is not that, but it could be that they, they also did a German release with those hand-drawn posters. Yes, I think that they were used uh, in a few different countries. There's also, um, yeah, I, I've got a few different versions, and... I've got more versions than are even referenced in Beyond the Mirror Image. Man, this book's this book's old. They're right behind me. I'll be. I'm gonna look at them right now. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are too much. Okay. Um, the audio might go crappy for a second. I'm gonna turn on my camera and show you. <laughs> okay. You guys see me? Hi, Allison. Uh, yep. Hello. Hi. So here is the German one, Der Zeitsprung. Yep. <laughs> Der Zeitsprung, okay. which is a different kind of thing. This is a bunch of cutouts and promo pictures and some hand-drawn thing of him. So uh, here's the versions I have, these hand-drawn ones. It's Perdido and El Tiempo, Quantum Leap and Quantum Leap 2. <laughs> uh, so this is the, for the pilots, sorry, my uh, mic's in the way. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's like, that's crazy. Uh, Perdido and El Tiempo, where he's checking his watch. 
They're do and there's the lightning even, they do the kinda like the flames. And uh Perdido in El Tiempo too. Yeah. And that's that art is used on the second German release as well. This is from a company, CIC Video. They did a, a bunch of these like this. Um, infamously, they did uh, some MacGyver releases where he's got guns on the covers. <laughs> you know, MacGyver <laughs> loved using guns. <laughs> anyway, I'll turn my camera off. But... So yeah, I got those Spanish releases, but not until after BTMI. So they did not get a reference. Another excuse for a new version. Mm-hmm. There we go. So, okay, so what's the skinny on the second wife? So the second wife, we learned she was Hungarian in Leaping In Without a Net and that she liked throwing around small appliances in Moments to Live. In Odyssey, there's a reference to her name possibly being Marcia. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. And um, the divorce lawyer in The Great Spontini reminds Al of the Hungarian wife's divorce lawyer. Oh, is that did she? Is she the one that took Chester the dog in the custody battle? Uh, yes, that would be it. <laughs> oh my <That'd> god! <laughs> I can't believe she got Chester. So yeah, it's difficult trying to put together Al's wives, but it does it does eventually all kind of hang together. But yeah, I think the second wife it must have been pretty quick because I think I established that there's two or three wives between 1975 and 1983. Yeah, he had to have been going through them pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's a little bit of trivia about the actors in the episode. Um, the mother in the episode, Eva Stoddard, she was played by uh, Anne Lockhart, who is a uh, daughter of June Lockhart. I was wondering if there was a relation. Who's also close friends with Jean-Pierre Dorliac. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so the guy who played uh, Tim, uh, Morgan Weiser, he uh, played Lee Harvey Oswald in The X-Files. Huh. That's his IMDb picture, actually, is him playing Lee Harvey Oswald in the X-Files. Why doesn't Sam notice? Why doesn't he notice that they've gone to the hospital until they're, like, right in front of the sign? <laughs> I mean, it's, he's like a dog going to the vet. Yeah. This, isn't, this isn't the circus. <laughs> oh, no. This isn't the park. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. I mean, that really it's was... Like, it's like how my dad used to trick us when we were kids, like, oh, we're going on a fun trip, and then it was Home Depot. Like, you <laughs> son of a gun. Well, you know, in Sam's defense, he does not know Charlton, Massachusetts, or New York, or where the There's hell they were. Sun. You gotta know you're going to a hospital. The parking lot's usually pretty distinctive. Like, the building's right in front of him. There was only that one sign, it looks like. So, yeah. he didn't realize till he saw the sign. And that was uh, that was the outside of uh, Belisarius Productions. Oh, was it? Was it? Yes. Oh, that's cool. But yes, Allison, you are pointing out the hokiest part of an otherwise solid episode, in my opinion. May, may, you think that was like a sly in-joke? Like they're kind of like a an institution Pelisarius <laughs> <laughs> Productions? This is where all the nutters are. Yeah. Um, I also, I didn't really get, um, when Sam's under the truth serum, he starts answering it as if he is presently in New Mexico in 1999. Do you know where you are? I'm in uh, New Mexico. What is the date? May 1st, 1999. Like, that doesn't really match up with what you would do, like, in a lie detector test or anything like that. Unless his body is sitting there and he's just there in spirit this time. Hmm. Oh, you know what? Maybe that's what he was thinking. We should have asked him. Right. Should have asked Richard Oki. But regardless of that, if you left the present day in what like 1995 and then you've been time traveling ever since and 
not being able to sit there really compass mentis and think about, right, how long have I been time traveling for now? You're going to answer, you're going to say it's 1995, surely. You wouldn't know it's May, whatever it is, 1999. Surely he knows what year it is he's currently in, though. But why? That's because he... Because true serum, the way it works, and it's all kind of hokey anyway, uh, yeah. but it like, kind of just makes you kind of loose and lower your inhibitions or whatever, you know, so it's not like he just suddenly doesn't know where he is. Yeah, but only if he starts to, if he stops to think about it, and I don't think he's got the capacity at that point to think that through. I'm going to correct myself slightly and say maybe he should be thinking the date that he left in The Leap Back, but that's the last date he was in the present day. That was 99, though. Was it? it yeah, was the leap back was 1999. Yeah, okay. okay. I mean, maybe if he was like a little bit confused, you know, he'd be like, like, he could say that, I guess. It just doesn't seem like he, he, like, he knows he's not in 1999. Maybe he'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm Sam, because he is Sam, but... That whole bit is a little bit weird, because the, the question is what? Tell us about yourself. Now, no matter what kind of truth serum or drugs or alcohol or whatever you're under the influence of, tell us about yourself isn't usually answered with a social security number and an umbra yeah. code, right? <laughs> Sam was ready to <laughs> spill everything. He'd be like, yeah, well, uh, I like musicals, and I can play the guitar, and <laughs> hey, I, I'm a physicist and shit. <laughs> and I love to use the VCR and watch a <laughs> movie and pop some popcorn in the microwave and just starts listing off all the things from the pilot yes and i streaked once yeah oh my gosh that was such a weird detail wasn't it can you imagine sam beckett streaking obviously it's it's important to the plot and it's it's fine and i overlook it but it is just it's he sounds like someone that's been trained to be a prisoner of war and know only to give his name rank and serial number if he's ever caught maybe that was a bit from shock theater you know just he's still got those bits of magic you know (laughs) you guys are the greatest you can you can headcanon anything into making sense if you try hard enough (laughs) i'm just very impressed that matt got the term compass mentis into the quantum leap podcast i believe that's a first thank you thank you (laughs) i've honestly been distracted ever since then um (laughs) what are you guys talking about I know, we're talking about Sam's Umbra Code. Now, I want to ask you guys, because I think we touched on this in the end of Killing Time, but what what are they ADRing in Leap In over the old boy? Because his mouth certainly doesn't match. So what was he yelling? He's just saying, who are you again? They use the actual take in the intro. And in the opening title sequence, there's a shot of him shouting, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Which isn't in the episode at all. He must have just, yeah, just said a bunch of things like, here's what you would say to an alien, just shout some stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why they did the oh boy if he just didn't do an oh boy and they were like, nah, let's use one or whatever. But that was one of the most obvious, like, you know, he's opening his mouth wide. You're looking right at him. He's not saying it. (laughs) It's bizarre. It's more distracting than if he had just said, who are you? And they didn't have an oh boy. It'd be fine. You don't have to always have an oh boy. Maybe they thought it was, like, not enthusiastic enough. They want to end with, like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy! (laughs) (laughs) Like Scooby-Dooby-Doo? Yeah. (laughs) They gave him Scooby snacks to go to the hospital. That's why I didn't realize. (laughs) Here's another line I really liked. We're talking about those government guys. So they're, um... First of all, I love that they just follow around an old guy who's (laughs) talking about UFOs a lot. They're like, we ought to find out if this guy's legit. (laughs) And then, like, the one is like... I haven't joined the Air Force to harass old men. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but apparently I'll hold him at gunpoint I'll in the woods. I'll hold him at gunpoint. <laughs> it's interesting that that car scene was uh, added later because I think it really was mm. necessary to establish yeah. that. Can you imagine if they hadn't showed up till that next scene that they showed up in? It would be forever in the episode. It's a really nicely written little scene. I, I think you find that sometimes, though, some of the what, what turns out to be padding and filler is sometimes some of the best moments. There's little character pieces. It did help to to build up those government guys a little more, too, because um, I appreciated there was, like, little things added so they aren't just two cardboard cutouts to just be like, ah, we must capture the aliens. <laughs> but I also, I think that the actors that they had cast, and I'm not really sure who played the military guy, but the doctor, his name was Dr. Hardy, and that's a character actor named H. Richard Green, who's been in a gazillion things. So I think that he really helped bring that home because he has a certain like a gravitas and he can be both comforting and menacing. And when I first saw him, I was like, Oh my God, that's the sixties equivalent of a man in black. So I thought it was kind of a neat twist on an alien premise. Oh, 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 you know what wasn't neat though? That awful, awful, awful wig that they made poor Ann Lockhart wear. Oh, yeah. Am I the only one? I, well, I think part of it is just because that's just a terrible 60s hairstyle mm. that did not hold up. But yeah, it is a wig, quite obviously. <laughs> uh, but I think in general, it's just, uh, it. I, I don't know if it's the wig problem or just because that style is not good. Right, so you're saying when that style is at its best, it still looks like a bad wig, right? Yeah, it's all right if you're using it for like, you know, the Supremes or like a stage thing. But when you're just walking around like normal, it just seems overdone, little Whoville to me. <laughs> Did I mention in the in Killin' Time, I really liked the, it looked like a, I probably said it, the Cindy Lou Who hair. Very good. Yes. Yes, you did mention that. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever so. did the, I don't know if I know who did the hair in Quantum Leap. I'm sure there were multiple people, but um, they're very good at doing period hair. You know, this is just a style that was in at the time. <laughs> Andrea Mitsushima. Oh, okay. For every episode of season five, at least. Cool. If she's, uh, she's still around and available to interview, we should talk to her. That'd be cool. Unique challenges, right? And um, once again, Jean-Pierre knocking it out of the park. Have we seen that salmon suit that Al wears before this with that, that sequined orange tie or sparkly? It's like a glitter tie. The salmon suit was worn in Raped and I believe Ghost Ship as well. I don't know. Maybe it's just the way they accessorized it this time. Just something about it really popped. Yeah. They also used that um, suede blue jacket that uh, premiered in Stand Up. You're so good at spotting this stuff. <laughs> well, at least I can uh, remember the fashions. <laughs> I do believe there was a radio in the hospital room. But... <laughs> Tell us about the radio, Chris. I didn't have the gumption to freeze frame and actually look, look. I just said, no, oh. that looks like it could be a clock radio right there. It looked like a white plastic cabinet. So it makes sense that it would be on a side table. <laughs> Let me see if I can find a screen cap <laughs> yeah, of it. it what, <laughs> what scene was it again? Uh, when they're giving them the sodium pentothal. It's uh, to the screen left. It's next to his bed? Yeah, lying in the bed. Yeah. It's not 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 the recording thing. Well, that's not a radio, is it? Um No, 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 see. no. This is on the nightstand. Okay. I'm going to send it in the uh the Facebook chat. I'll you got it already? Quick. Got I have well, I have all these screen caps already. <laughs> uh. 
Um, I have a collection of screen caps uh, because of the Tumblr thing that I do. Cool. <laughs> anyway, here's a, I think that's a, a decent ish. Mm. I'm not going to be able to uh, identify it anyway. So I don't know. I brought it up to waste our time, I guess. I don't know. Let me take a look. Though. I am very curious to see it now. It's got some like pots in front of it. Yeah, it's a, that's one of the one of the fun things about trying to identify these things is that it's covered. Yeah, that's certainly a clock radio. Wow, that's neat. What is that? <laughs> we get to see like in real time, like, mm. <laughs> all right, good. So it is a radio. Okay, we have a radio setting here. I was looking all around the house and in the background, and this was the only one that really stood out to me without having to really, you know, scour the background stuff when you train your eye allison just like you know all of al's clothes oh there's a radio <laughs> anyway thank you for sending well me i this. can tell it's a radio it's just not what i don't know what kind it is <laughs> it's probably like a little ge oh okay it's definitely a mid-60s plastic table type mm. when they were starting to lose their style when they started to go all ugly nice screen cap by the way oh thank you it's from the blu-ray have you noticed that jean-pierre dressed scott in the giant up to the nipples, old man pants yeah, throughout this yeah, entire yeah. episode. Yeah, old man pants. <laughs> it was a very good detail. It helped sell the old manness of the whole thing. Because I think even when um, I, I can't think of any other examples other than Color of Truth, where he leapt into an elderly person. Right? He's basically dressed like Fred Mertz in this. <laughs> I, I I like the suspenders red shirt combo though. It actually looks really good. The high pants, notwithstanding. They color coordinate with the restraints in the hospital bed. He, he's even got like a little cardigan that he wears with it. It does do a good job of establishing that he isn't an older person the way that he's dressing. It's not just the period, it's the style that he's wearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought it was neat that they gave Max such a dynamic background that he was an Irish immigrant fleeing the potato famine, yet he was also a pilot in World War One. And because in so many things, he'll just say, oh, it's this, it's this old guy. And I think that Rick gave... Uh, a really interesting little detail just to spice up the script for the backstory. And I, I don't know how often we get that level of detail in the Leapy's backstory. So Max seems like he had a pretty interesting life. Yeah, as you say, it's um, you usually just get, oh, it's just this old guy. But then that's the whole point of this episode is is giving a bit more flavor to this character that he's not just this old guy. He is a guy that has a past and it's it's more respectful to him to give him that um that extra history. This reminds me of um I mentioned this before. There's an unproduced script that was about uh caring for the elderly and yeah. uh it was um from season 1 or around season 2 sometime when they didn't have everything down exactly. Uh it was kind of interesting, but I think this was the better story. Definitely. That one involves some kind of like action stuff at the end and it got kind of ridiculous, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and this was also one of the few times uh the people on the leap saved Sam. They saved him. Oh, that's true. I never even thought of that. Well, that's a neat twist. Yeah. They gave them a lot more stuff to do and you see this increasingly through season 5, the guest stars getting more things to do, and I think that was a a thing that consciously they were trying to do so Scott Bakula wasn't in every single scene, all the time. Yeah, but you think about it. In Killing Time, the mom saves Sam. The hostage saves the hostage taker, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Huh. It's pretty cool. I'm, I'm glad. It, it feels like the people have more agency, too. It isn't just Sam coming in to save them from being dum-dums, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah, not that that was always the case, but uh, just, you know... The fact that they they have their own agency and it isn't just some higher power sending in someone in to 
to fix everything in their life magically. It is a neat wrinkle. And now that I'm aware of it, I'm, I think I'm going to be looking for it more and more as season five progresses. Again, it's just such a different show, isn't it? Mm. Crazy. It's just crazy the difference the season makes. So, well, I don't know about you guys, but I think I'm pretty much out of notes on Starlight Starbright. Any final thoughts, uh, Allison? I didn't like the episode. I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> no, it's a it's a great episode. Um, I like them exploring the alien stuff. Um, some of it, uh, it could have been hokier, you know, mm. like, but it wasn't. I felt like it was grounded in something. So when you say like, oh, there's an episode with aliens, it sounds goofier than it is. It's it's pretty grounded in something. And I'm really glad that we got to talk to Richard Oki about it because uh, I learned a lot more about it than... Um, than I knew before, and I'm I'm glad to hear it was something personal to him because like I I appreciate the story more. How about you, Matt? Yeah, I, I think similarly to Allison, I, this is an episode that when I'm not watching it, um, I I kind of think of it as being the the alien episode, the UFO episode, and I I write it off a little bit, and it's not one that I return to frequently. But when I'm watching it, I I realise that I've forgotten that actually that's not really the driver of the story. And actually, this is a really, really good episode. And I I need to remember to watch this episode more frequently because the, the relationship between the characters and the story about um, dealing with older people with respect and and care regardless of what you think they might be uh going through mentally it's a really compelling storyline and i'm gonna mirror what you guys have said and i'm gonna take it a step further i think that you can tell that um at this point rick is a new writer to the show or a relatively mm -hmm. new writer to the show because what you have here honestly allison like it's a recipe for ludicrous it's a recipe for really come on aliens Yet, it's the sincerity that, that right, really, yeah. He, yeah. But he has such a verve for the characters, and mm. such such a sincerity, like you said, Allison, and just the enthusiasm I think that he has for being a writer on this show, even though it's in its last season. It's basically his first season as a full time writer, and um, it really shows what he brings to the table. It's in many ways a breath of fresh air. While they were doing a lot of different stuff, he even took the stuff that they've done a million times and made that very compelling and very new as well. So, yeah, this episode is not one that I ever really thought about much. I don't know that I've seen it for probably 20 years since I last saw it, to be honest with you. But wow. watching it before the show uh, a couple of times, it was just like, wow, solid season five. In my mind, season five has such a bad rap. And maybe that's why I haven't gone back to it for so long. But now we're on like our fourth really great episode, I think. I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald has his problems, but Shrew was amazing. Killing Time, one of the best episodes of the series. This one is right up there. It's so good. So Season five is great. <laughs> I have to re-educate myself of that fact, Matt. I'm sorry. <laughs> So I think that's it for Starlight, Starbright. We'll let the aliens go away. Uh, I would love to see some fanfic about Max's adventures. Maybe he'll show up in the space bar in the future somewhere. That'd be pretty terrific. <laughs> <laughs> 
They take him to the future as well. These are time traveling aliens. Why not? <laughs> Maybe they stop him aging. Oh, they. Oh, okay. So he's just very, very old. Right. Yeah, and all the relativistic effects of traveling at near light speeds, as you would have to in a spaceship. So yeah, you've seen Flight of the Navigator. Season six, when that picks up, I know they've been <laughs> renewed. When season six picks up, Sam will team up with Max in the future, and they'll uh, they'll have like a buddy cop adventure. <laughs> a buddy space cop adventure. Oh my gosh, so. yeah. <laughs> on that note, we're going to draw the curtain on Starlight, Starbright, but we need to raise the curtain on some Patreon news, guys. We have a new producer on the Quantum Ooh. Leap podcast. What? Hotshot producer. <laughs> Hotshot producer. Can you believe it? Actually, it's not exactly a new supporter. It's a longtime Patreon uh, patron named Charles Allen Gossard. Charles was generous enough to raise his monthly pledge from the $5 leaper level to the $20 producer level. Wow. wow. That means, Charles, you are now a producer officially on the Quantum Leap podcast, and your name will be read in the credits ad infinitum, or until you stop pledging $20 a month, whichever comes first. We'll see. But wow, that is just so generous. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, man. Are we doing something right? I guess. I guess in Charles's eyes. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I'm paying you to stop. (laughs) Please. Now that I am producer, I have some notes. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagining him with like a big cigar, like, all right. <laughs> this is the beginning of your demise. <laughs> now we're gonna have a real podcast. But uh, yeah, Charles, that's that's an amazing feat of generosity on your part. We really do appreciate it, and um, yeah, we look forward to hopefully living up to your expectations from this point on. Because wow, it just got real. All right, all right, no pressure, no pressure. Okay, we also got a little bit of feedback. I know you guys just got done listening to the. Big feedback extravaganza that we released, but um, we had some more come in that I completely forgot about. So I figured it would be nice <laughs> to do it, <laughs> to do it on this, on this feedback segment. So, um, Allison, why don't you take the reins on this? Oh, I'm glad that I am because I get to say their name. So, <laughs> so this feedback is from Ho Ho Blair or. <laughs> Blah! It was it was like Christmas, and then it turned into into Halloween. It was Santa, and then a vampire. <laughs> All right, so ho ho bleh says um, a must listen for QL fans. Quantum Leap has been my favorite show since I was a wee lad. Allison, Matt, and Chris bring their love and knowledge of the program to every episode, but also don't take themselves too seriously. You will occasionally get interviews from creators and guest stars, which is also very informative. I know there are a few Quantum Leap podcasts out there, but this one is definitely worth a subscribe and listen. Well, thank you. That's so nice. That's nice. Wow. Definitely worth a subscribe and listen. I mean, that's what I aspire to. <laughs> thank you so much. Ho, ho, blah. Uh, just so ho, you guys ho, know, everyone out there, ho, ho, blah, accompanied that with a five-star um, rating on oh. Apple Podcasts. So wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be hilarious, though, if it was like a one-star, but they're like, this one's great. I love it. It's <laughs> got high standards. That's the, all. The best of the best, but not good enough. <laughs> that's an amazing little bit of feedback, and thank you, Ho Ho Bleh. I think that we do try to strike a balance between turning this into just fan chat and keeping it a, l- a little bit more um, accessible to casual Quantum Leap viewers as well. So I hope we, we strike that balance anyway. I'm always trying to be cognizant of it. I don't want to go down fan holes too often. 
I mean, I like the fact that we get we get kind of deep with it sometimes, um, and that like you know we can get kind of silly and kind of serious. Like we're not just you know trying to be one thing or the other, just uh, whatever feels right in the moment. Whatever feels right in the moment. I'd say that's a perfect way to put it. So, And thank you also for the five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I mean, that's another way. Um, okay, so maybe not everybody can be Charles Allen Gossard and support us at a producer level or even at a leaper level. But um, one way you can support us is by giving us positive reviews on Apple Podcasts and whatever podcast catcher or streaming service that you use. If they have reviews, just, you know, give us give us a few stars. Throw us a bone. Um, that will help our podcast get up in the rankings, of course, and then it will get in front of more people when they search for things like the Quantum Leap podcast. Ours will come up first. Please, guys. Charles is such a such a tyrant. He's yeah, demanding he's so- that we get more five-star <laughs> reviews. He's like, give me the reviews! <laughs> Just a task master. <laughs> he's like the penguin. <laughs> <laughs> give us those reviews or you're out of here. <laughs> well, if you want to be like Ho-Ho-Bla, there are many <laughs> ways that you can contact us here on the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can get us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at quantumleappod. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast if you want to go the extra mile and start lording your power over our lives like a certain Charles Allen Gossard. Just remember, we may use your response in an upcoming episode of the quantum leap podcast and speaking of upcoming episodes matt what's next well guys we've mentioned a few times during tonight's record that uh, season five is the time where we really take it up a notch where they're pushing the boundaries and um very excited to say next time we're going to be talking about deliver us from evil which is surely a milestone in uh, shifting quantum leap law <laughs> You all right, Jimmy? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm sorry. Everybody all right? Yeah, we're all right. Yeah. Get him off there. Didn't I tell you to stay away from the forklift? You're not ready to drive it yet. Frank? Is that you? Of course it's me. Did you hit your head? No. No, I... No, I... I didn't... Jimmy. Jimmy. I'm Jimmy. No, you Jimmy. And I'm back. I'm back, Frank. Ha! I'm Jimmy. Oh, boy. How diggity Doof. Car-inspired evil leapers <laughs> coming up. I cannot believe we've got this part of the lore now. The evil leapers originated with Carr. Somehow, <laughs> somehow the Knight Rider universe ties into the Quantum Leap universe. Yeah. Uh, the technology for Carr was used in the evil project. That's where Lothos started. Lothos was just a swish. Is- <laughs> he was a swish on Carr's hood. Did Carr have the swish too? The Oh, you know what? You know what? The car sound for Al's car is the Knight Rider car sound. <laughs> I feel like there's some credence to this theory here. <laughs> Somehow Knight Rider and, and Quantum Leap tie in together. That is the very first sound that you hear on Quantum Leap is the kit car sound as Al's driving down the road. Allison, 
I think that you have just made another discovery on par with the lost ending negatives and <laughs> and the footage that we eventually unearthed because of that. So this is more groundbreaking Allison Pregler exclusive here only on the Quantum Leap podcast. Oh my God. We're going to uncover all of the mysteries on Quantum Leap. <laughs> I watched the whole of Tales of the Golden Monkey just because of the Quantum Leap tie-in. Don't make me watch the whole of Knight Rider now. Well, I'm <laughs> they're both NBCs, so you will see a lot of the same sets and standing things and uh... maybe some similar props. Uh, I think some costumes also that were from stock are used in there, but it's not like, uh, look, I've told you the essentials you need to know, but but if you want a recommendation for just a fun show to watch, well, that's Knight Rider. <laughs> how, how many episodes are there? There are only two car episodes, according to Allison. Yeah, I, I, might, I might just watch the car episodes. That's a way to go. You could just watch those two. Watch those and watch the Garth Knight episodes. Very, very good. <laughs> okay. That's when uh, David Hasselhoff has an evil, there's an evil David Hasselhoff with a mustache, and he's, oh, <laughs> there's a whole backstory there. He's mirror, mirror universe David Hasselhoff. He's mirror universe David Hasselhoff, for all we intents get. and purposes. <laughs> Everyone had an evil double on that show. Everyone. Including the car. Portrayed by Pontiac Trans Am. Well, somebody swoop in, please, and deliver me from this evil. Um <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear what Matt has to say about car. Uh, until then, I have been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Allison Evil Leaper Pregler. <laughs> I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time to discuss evil in the Quantum Leap universe. Yay! <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Morgan Felden and Charles Allen Gossard are the producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. It's an Emerson 31 LO2 o'clock radio. I was able to identify this definitively because there is a unique starburst where the 12 should be on the clock face. Unfortunately, all of the other uniquely identifying features of this radio are covered up by a picture on the nightstand, but I'm pretty sure on this one. The only thing that gives me pause is the only example I've been able to find online has a black cabinet or a brown cabinet, and this is clearly a beautiful white cabinet. So this might be a variant on that model. I don't know. And as far as dating it, the only year I found listed for this set was 1959 to 1960. If that's true, that makes this set non-anachronistic, meaning it's perfectly at home in Sam's leap date of 1966. However, I don't know how much credence I put in that because, like I said, there's not a lot of information about this radio online. This is your Quantum Leap radio guru tuning out.